Uh, you know, we're, we're a people made by God to worship, uh, not just in song, but in other ways. But song is a natural way, isn't it, to respond to the greatness of God. Don't you love that psalm that Pastor Nick read from Psalm 50 uh, of this God so worthy of worship and so in need of absolutely nothing from us? Like we don't come uh, to give something to him that he needs. He's not, he's not lacking anything. And so we come to respond to him in worship, and it's so good. And we know this, that every human made in God's image worships someone or something. You know that? Every human made in God's image worships someone or something. The percentage of adults in our nation that are actually like gathering together for any kind of religious worship service on a weekly basis is now, it keeps declining. Now it's down to about one third. And that's just the the people who say they attend some kind of religious gathering once a week. That's only a third of our nation. The other number that's declining, it's down, uh, that's sorry, increasing, is, is it's now about one quarter of the people in our nation claim no religious affiliation. They just say, I just I don't have any sort of religion whatsoever. Our nation is increasingly secular. There's all kinds of different like religions and philosophies and worldviews to choose from. It's kind of like they're all out on a buffet line. And what a lot of people do, it's like Pizza Ranch on Sunday afternoon. It's like, well, that looks good and that one looks good. I'm going to mix that with that. And they just, they got a plate full of all sorts of different things. And they're just kind of mixing together worldviews, religions, and philosophies. We live in kind of a you-do-you world. Like, it's, it's up to you. You just kind of pick what you want and uh, see what happens. And so we look at the world around us and we wonder, is, is there hope for the spread of the gospel and the growth of the church in this kind of context? Is there hope? How are we supposed to reach people with the gospel in this culture at this time of history? Those are good questions, the questions we should be asking. And when we left off in the book of Acts, chapter 17, Paul had been in Thessalonica and then Berea. We talked about being people of the word. That's what they were in those places. But now, when we left off, he had left Berea and made the trip down to Athens. Athens was kind of like the cultural capital of the Greco-Roman world. Think like a combination of like New York City, Silicon Valley, and Hollywood kind of all put together in a city, and that's kind of what Athens was like at that time. The people there, though, they had their plates filled with all sorts of different religions and worldviews and philosophies from the buffet line that the world around them was offering to them as well. So is there any hope for the advance of the gospel and the growth of the church in Athens? I mean, I see how the church could take root and grow in Jerusalem, maybe even in Antioch, but way over in Athens, this kind of place, is there any hope that the gospel will take root and that people will repent of their sin and believe the truth of the gospel in this place? How is Paul going to reach people with the gospel in this culture at this time in history? Let's go ahead and look at Acts 17, verses 16 to 34. If you're able to, would you stand? I'm going to just read the whole thing together. This is, this is a glorious passage, uh, and I wish, well, we're, we're going to keep moving, but this, would be like, this could be a five-week sermon series. Uh, this, is, this is rich. Let's hear the Word of God after I pray. Father, we do. We want to hear your Word. And so, would you take our minds that are, are quick to wander into all sorts of uh, 
compared to this worthless things. That, that, that we have the opportunity to hear your word. We want to know you and we want to make you known. And I can't make that happen even if I wear my voice out preaching. But your Holy Spirit can make that happen as we hear your word, believe your word, and obey your word. And so would you come and work by your spirit now for our good, for the good of the world around us, and for your glory. Amen. God's word from Acts 17, starting in verse 16. Now, while Paul was waiting for them at Athens, his spirit was provoked within him as he saw that the city was full of idols. So he reasoned in the synagogue with the Jews and the devout persons, and in the marketplace every day with those who happened to be there. Some of the Epicurean and Stoic philosophers also conversed with him. And some said, what does this babbler wish to say? Others said, he seems to be a preacher of foreign divinities because he was preaching Jesus and the resurrection. And they took him and they brought him to the Areopagus, saying, may we know what this new teaching is that you are presenting? For you bring some strange things to our ears. We wish to know, therefore, what these things mean. Now all the Athenians and the foreigners who lived there would spend their time in nothing except telling or hearing something new. So Paul, standing in the midst of the Areopagus, said, Men of Athens, I perceive that in every way you are very religious. For as I passed along and observed the objects of your worship, I found also an altar with this inscription, to the unknown God. What therefore you worship as unknown, this I proclaim to you. The God who made the world and everything in it, being Lord of heaven and earth, does not live in temples made by man. Nor is he served by human hands as though he needed anything, since he himself gives to all mankind life and breath and everything. And he made from one man every nation of mankind to live on all the face of the earth, having determined allotted periods and the boundaries of their dwelling place, that they should seek God and perhaps feel their way toward him and find him. Yet he is actually not far from each one of us. For in him we live and move and have our being. As even some of your own poets have said, for we are indeed his offspring. Being then God's offspring... We ought not to think that the divine being is like gold or silver or stone, an image formed by the art and imagination of man. The times of ignorance God overlooked, but now he commands all people everywhere to repent, because he has fixed the day on which he will judge the world in righteousness by a man whom he has appointed, and of this he has given assurance to all by raising him from the dead. Now, when they heard of the resurrection of the dead, some mocked. But others said, we will hear you again about this. So Paul went out from their midst, but some men joined him and believed, among whom also were Dionysius, the Areopagite, and a woman named Damaris, and others with them. Amen. You can be seated. This is going to be fun. So uh, open up your bulletin if you have not already uh, gotten to the sermon notes page. That might be helpful for you to just kind of see an outline. Uh, Maybe you write notes, maybe you don't. Life Group Guide is right after that. Hopefully that's useful as we go about the week as well. There in that sermon notes page, you'll see a couple of points that we're going to make today. The first is observe and engage. Paul, remember, had left Berea and he left Silas and Timothy there. He had now sent word that they should come and join him. But for now, it seems he's alone there in the big city of Athens. And as he's there, it's hard not to notice that this is a city 
filled with idols. So he notices this city filled with idols. And as he's observing, note, he is observing. We're going to talk more about that later. He saw that the city was full of idols, but that does something to him emotionally. Did you catch that in verse 16 right away? As he sees the idols in the city of around, around him, it's not like he's just like, oh, that's cute. Like that's, that's, you know, a lot of times you go to, especially country people like us, right? We go to the big city and we're just in awe of all this stuff that we see, right? But Paul, he didn't show up in Athens like, oh, I got to get a selfie over there and over there. And I like, that wasn't his thing. He wasn't in awe. It did something to him emotionally. It says his spirit was provoked within him. It was upset, maybe even angered a little bit, as he saw all of these people worshiping idols, the city filled with idols. He's stirred up, he's stimulated, emotionally affected by the culture that he sees. So, what's he going to do? Like, is he going to recognize, like, hey, I do not belong here, right? I'm out. Like, these, these people are cracked, Right? There's something, something wrong with these people. I'm going back to where I'm more comfortable, right? I'm, I'm leaving the blue state and I'm moving to a red state. Like, is, that, is that what he's going to do? Well, let's continue. Verse 17. So, okay, so his spirit is provoked. He's seen the idols. His spirit's provoked. So, so he reasoned in the synagogue with the Jews and the devout persons. Okay, so he's going to stay. He feels probably pretty uncomfortable there, but he's going to stick around because the people there need Jesus. So he goes first to the synagogue. That's where he often goes. If there's one in the city, he starts there. He he can understand and relate to the people there pretty well, right? So he starts there going to minister to the Jews and the Greeks uh, who are devout persons there in the synagogue. That's where he starts, but then he continues out from there, and notice what it says next in verse 17, and in the marketplace... Every day with those who happened to be there. Maybe they were just gathering weekly in the synagogue, but it's like, well, i got other days during the week. Let's go out and meet some people. And when it says marketplace, don't think like Hy-Vee or Fairway or Walmart. It's not just a place where you buy stuff, right? It's really kind of the, the cultural and social and economic center of the city. Okay, So it's a place where people would gather not just to buy things, but also to have social relationships with one another, some meetings and things like that. Well, he goes there daily, it says, and I'm sure his eyes are wide open as he takes it all in. He observes, but he's not just observing, he's engaging with the people there in the marketplace, right? He was reasoning not just with the people in the synagogues, but reasoning engaging the minds to go back to the message from last week of the people there. Then it tells us uh, of some specific kinds of philosophers, Epicurean and Stoic philosophers, and this was a Bible study. We'd spend some time getting into what do the Epicureans believe, what do the Stoics believe, just saying they believe something different than the gospel of Jesus Christ. They were living according to a different kind of worldview and philosophy, but they were very popular and influential at that time. And How are they going to respond to Paul's reasoning? Well, kind of a mixed response. Some of them, it says, said, well, what does this babbler wish to say? Others said he seems to be a preacher of foreign divinities. They say that because what is Paul actually doing? He's preaching Jesus and the resurrection. Well, to them, this is new and it's strange. And if you think about it for a second, 
It is kind of strange, right, what we believe. And so, so he's preaching Jesus and the resurrection, and they decide they'd like to hear a little bit more. Verse 19, and they took him and brought him to the Areopagus. This would be a place where a more kind of public presentation and debate could take place, also uh, called Mars Hill, saying, may we know what this new teaching is that you are presenting, for you, are, you bring some strange things to our ears. We wish to know, therefore, what these things mean. So they're at least curious, right? giving him a platform. They want to hear some of these new and strange things in more detail. And then verse 21 says, now all the Athenians, this is kind of just Luke's comment. This is helpful for us who, like, I didn't live in Athens in the first century. Luke is giving us a little insight into their culture. Paul had obviously kind of recognized this as well. Here's what the people of Athens were like. It says, they would spend their time in nothing except telling or hearing something new. Okay? Oh, that's a new idea. Like, I mean, not unlike our day, right? They didn't have 24-hour news stations. Uh, They didn't have access to everything on their phone like we do. But you could say about us, they spent all their time just looking for something new, right? Scrolling through, and I'm just like, well, there's something new. There's something new. There's like, we're just constantly engaged. That's the kind of thing that they did there in Athens. Well, how's the gospel ever going to take root in a place like that? Well, Paul has this opportunity to speak. Now, we've heard sermons before. We've heard how Paul has reasoned with others in synagogues with Jewish people and God-fearing Gentiles. This message that he's about to share in the Areopagus has been called by some kind of like the most masterful speech given to Gentiles uh, in all of the New Testament. I don't know, you you rank those things, I don't know, but that's what some people say, right? And I think, I agree, this is masterful, how Paul understands, seeks to understand and observe the culture that he's in so that he can address the people there and meet them where they're at and, and make a bridge to the gospel. Watch what he does. Verse 22, so Paul, standing in the midst of the Areopagus, said, Men of Athens, I perceive that in every way you are very religious. Interesting, isn't it? That, that how he begins to engage with the people there is not like coming out with guns blazing, like I'm going to win the culture war in Athens with one speech. Go get them, Paul. That's not how he starts. He starts by not causing them to kind of like raise it. Because if he did that, man, their, their, their defense walls would just come up right away if he just started with an attack, right? But instead, he actually affirms them a little bit, doesn't he? He's, he's done a good job. He's done his homework. He understands them. And he says, hey, I perceive that in every way you are very religious. So they're like, yeah, hey, he gets us, right? He, this guy understands us. And then in verse 23, for as I passed along and observed... Okay, again, remember he saw a city full of idols. Now he's telling them, here's what I observed. Observe the objects of your worship. I found also an altar with this inscription to the unknown God. So Pastor Paul is walking through the streets and he finds a sermon illustration, right? Huh. 
All these people, he's, he's stirred up, he's, he's, he's provoked in his spirit by all the idol worship, but then he sees this one and there's an inscription on it, and it says, to the unknown God. Huh. Well, I could use that. So now he's speaking to them, right? He says, as I was observing, I noticed you worship this one unknown God. All right, here's the bridge. Here we go. They seem to be open to all sorts of different ideas. So Paul's going to put out there a God worth worrying. What, what, what provoked Paul? I think what provoked Paul was this. He saw them worshiping all these idols, and he knew they were worthless. They're worthless. You guys are spending your lives worshiping worthless things. And by God's grace, I know the one true God who will satisfy. And so, what is Paul going to do now that he has the opportunity to address them? Look at this. This is beautiful. What therefore, this is the end of verse 23, what therefore you worship as unknown, this I proclaim to you. Here's the bridge. You're worshiping an unknown God. And he doesn't tell them right up front, I think your God is worthless. You just, you're worshiping an unknown God. I'm going to proclaim to you. There's some God, you're kind of like something in you says, I need to worship this God. I'm going to tell you who this one true God is. Listen to this. Verse, this is beautiful. Verse 24. The God who made the world and everything in it, being Lord of heaven and earth. Just think about how he's already contrasting the one true God with their God, right? Their gods were made by some dude down in the marketplace, right? Some guy who knew how to use stone or gold or silver or whatever fashioned a god. That's the gods they worship. So right off the bat, he's got, uh, let, let me tell you about a God worth worshiping. The God who made the world and everything in it. Not a God who you made, but a God who made everything. Love that. Then he goes on, being Lord of heaven and earth. You think about like Greek and, and Roman gods. They had the God of the sea. They had the God of love, the goddess of this, the God of that. He's like, let me tell you about my God. The Lord of heaven and earth. Covers everything, right? He's not the, the one God of this thing, so you can add him to your buffet line. So like, oh yeah, it's the God of this. You're introducing us to this God who's this God of this. No, this is the creator of all things who is the Lord of all things, heaven and earth. That's why we sang the song, all creatures of our God and King. Lift up your voice and with us sing, right? He is the one true God. And then he goes on, verse, where are we at? Verse 25, oh wait, no, end of verse 24. He does not live in temples made by man. Paul was probably able, from where he was standing, to point to the temples where they would go worship all these different gods. <laughs> Your God lives in that temple? Like, my God doesn't live in a temple. <laughs> He's not made, he doesn't live in temples made by human hands. He goes on, verse 25, nor is he served by human hands as though he needed anything since he himself gives to all mankind life and breath and everything. Don't you love that? Like, he, he ain't going to fit in your temple, and he's not going to ask you for anything because he doesn't need anything from you. He's not served by your hand. Your gods need you. Like, if they're going to move from one place to another, you've got to pick it up, put it on a utility cart, and move it to another spot. Like, our God doesn't need you. He doesn't need to be served by your human hands. 
He is the one who gives to all mankind life and breath and everything. This is a God worth worshiping, not a God that you can pick up and move to a different spot, but a God who gives all mankind life and breath and everything. That's a God worth worshiping. Then there's more. Verse 26. And he made from one man every nation of mankind to live on all the face of the earth, having determined allotted periods and the boundaries of their dwelling place. Isn't that cool? God didn't just create the world with Adam and Eve and then like, well, we'll see what happens with that. No, every nation of the earth has come about by God's decree. Everything is sustained by Him. From one man, every nation of mankind, to live on the face of all the earth, having determined allotted periods and the boundaries of their dwelling place. History and geography, totally under control of our one true God, right? Politics and economics, totally under the control of the Lord of heaven and earth. As we'll sing later, every inch of this universe belongs to you, O Christ, for through you and for you it was made. Your creation endures by the order of your hand, so you must have in all things the first place. Part of being made in God's image is some sense of God's existence. So look at what it says in verse 27. Right? God, God has revealed himself in nature in such a way that, that we who are made in his image recognize that, that nature says something about the eternal power and divine nature of God. That's the way it says it in Romans chapter 1. Here's what it says in verse 27. He's trying to relate that truth to them. That they should seek God and perhaps feel their way toward him and find him. That, that idea of feeling their way toward him and find him, the, the word there refers to like a blind person kind of just going like this. Maybe you, maybe you stumble across God as you do that, right? 2 Corinthians chapter 4, verse 4 says, Satan has blinded the minds of unbelievers so they can't see the light of the glory of God in the gospel of Jesus Christ. They, they can't. So, so the problem for the Athenians and everybody else in the world is on our own. We're going to grope around and try to find him. Yet he is actually not far from each one of us. And then Paul does something that's another stroke of genius. He starts quoting Athenian pop culture, right? He's, 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 he's watching their shows and he's read their social media accounts and he's listening to their music a little bit, not to entertain himself, it seems, but so that he can recognize, hey, that there's something probably that's true in there that I could use to connect with them, right? So, In him we live and move and have our being, as even some of your own poets have said, for we are indeed his offspring. And then one final verse before he gets to the application, uh, verse 29. Verse 29 says, Being then God's offspring, we ought not to think that a divine being is like gold or silver or stone, an image formed by the art and imagination of man. He's just kind of getting it out there, okay? <laughs> the gods that you worship are different than the God that I'm telling you about right now, as if that wasn't clear in what he said already. It's kind of like a summary statement. We're, we're, not, we're not talking about a God that, that some artist created or that came up in your own imagination. I'm telling you about the God who made everything. 
the God who is Lord over heaven and earth, the one who is in control of all history and geography and politics and economics, that, that God, I'm telling you about that God, you've got to do something with it. Right? So, so he, doesn't just, he doesn't just end his speech there. There's an application point at the end. And the application point is this. Look at verse 30. The times of ignorance God overlooked, but now he commands all people everywhere to repent. To repent is to change mind and change direction. It's calling all people everywhere to repent. Why? Listen, verse 31. This is why this is urgent. This is not just, he's not just saying, hey, here, here's, here's what you can do. Add this one to the buffet line. And then you can pick a little bit of this, a little Epicurean philosophy, a little bit of this religion, a little bit of that goddess, a little bit of this, a little bit of that, and then you got a full plate. He's saying, no, you gotta, you got to dump your plate. State law requires a new plate, right? <laughs> Come, you got a whole new plate, and the only thing that's going to be on your plate is this God. He commands all people everywhere to repent. Verse 31, here's why. Because he has fixed the day on which he will judge the world in righteousness by a man whom he has appointed. And of this, he has given assurance to all by raising him from the dead. Listen, people in Athens, you need to change. Change your mind. Change your direction. Change your life. Stop worshiping things that are not God. And start worshiping a God worth worshiping. There's a day of judgment coming. And you know who the judge is? Not you. Like, you don't get to decide. Right? And neither are your dead stone gods. Those are not the judge. The one who is the judge is the Lord who is alive. Your gods are dead, actually, and never even been alive. This is the God who has lived eternally, who was born who lived, who died, was buried, and raised from the dead. This is the one who God has appointed to judge. Are you ready? So he leaves them with that. What's their response? This is, I mean, this is just evangelism, apologetics, rhetorical gold here. How are they going to respond? Well, there's a mix, just like usual. Verse 32, when they heard of the resurrection of the dead, some mocked. Okay, so that's one response. Some mocked. Others said, we will hear you again about this. Okay, so that's another potential response. Like, oh, not totally sure yet, but can you keep talking to me? Right? That's fine. That's good. So Paul went out from their midst. But here's the third response. Some men joined him and believed, among whom also were Dionysius the Areopagite and a woman named Damaris and others with them. Okay? So like pretty much everywhere else, there's a mixed response. Here, we don't hear of anybody attacking uh, yet or, or opposing them in any way. Right? All right. So much here. Like I said, man, we could spend lots of times uh, just looking at this. Here, here's, as I studied this this week, I think the Holy Spirit led Luke to include the text of this speech because a lot of times Paul goes somewhere and we're told that he preaches the word of the Lord, but we're not told what he says. So I had to ask myself as I was studying this, why, why did the Holy Spirit inspire Luke to actually include what Paul said in Athens? Many other places, we don't know what Paul said, but here we got a really long section that's what Paul said. Why is that, why is that included? Well, I think in part it's included because 
God intends for the church to learn something about how to do effective evangelism in a culture that is not ready, it seems, to hear the gospel. Or maybe they are. Did you notice how Paul had so obviously just studied their culture? Remember the things we pointed out? This, he, he saw that the city was full of idols. He noticed, he said, I observed that you have an altar with an inscription to the unknown God. And, and here, I'm going to tell you about the God you can know. Did you notice that he knew their poetry? Right? He was up on their pop culture a little bit. He found the truth in it and he used it to tell them about God's sovereignty. Can we learn anything from this? I think so. I think that's why God has this section in Scripture. Question for you. It's more about your personality. Do you like people watching? Are you a people watching person? You ever just like sit in a public place and try not to be creepy about it, but watch people? Aren't people fascinating? Kirsten and I both love this. We both majored in college in sociology, which is the study of how people live in, in relationship with and in a society with and interact with one another. So we, we were probably attracted to that because we already like to do that kind of thing, right? One of the things that we were trained to do in that is to see the familiar as strange, to try to step back from stuff that are just like, you know, we're just kind of like, Start to think that everything's normal, but it's good to sometimes step back and recognize, wait, that's interesting, uh, and see the familiar as strange. The people in Athens, well, they were used to a whole big buffet of gods and philosophies and worldviews. Most people just kind of had some sort of mix or syncretism of all of those things put together. And like I mentioned, I think this sounds maybe a little bit like our culture today. So, so that's why I think, especially from this passage, we can learn something about effective evangelism. What can we learn? Well, I think, number one, we can learn how to better listen to people and, and, and observe our culture in order that we might make bridges to the gospel with them. I want God to provoke me. I, I, like, like That could be a prayer that you could pray. God, help me not to look at the world around me and just kind of accept that as like, that's just the way it is. Help me to be provoked in my spirit as I see so many people worshiping false gods around me. God, do something to me emotionally. Stir me up like you did Paul so that I might start to engage with them. Remember verse 16, he was provoked in his spirit. Verse 17, so he reasoned with them. I'm going to go out, like I want to talk to them about this. God, do that in us. Help me to notice things. Effective evangelism, listen, Effective evangelism doesn't start when you start kicking off your memorized cookie-cutter gospel presentation. That's not where good evangelism starts. Good evangelism starts when we live in a community and we get to know the people there. When we ask people questions and we actually listen to them. When we get to know people really well. Slowing down enough to notice things and asking God, give me wisdom that I can really hear and love these people and be provoked in such a way that I'm going to reason with them, starting with where they're at, not starting with where I'm at. Paul used some bridges like an altar with an inscription on it and poetry. He read their poetry. We live in a spot where, you know, more so than the coast, like on the coasts of our nation, uh, things have become increasingly secular at a faster rate than they have 
here in the interior of our nation, right? So a lot of people still have some sort of religious background. Let's notice that. Let's recognize a lot of people around us have some sort of religious background. But I wonder how many of them are really worshiping kind of an unknown God, right? They have some sort of religious affiliation. Let's get to know them that we might say, can I introduce you to the God of the Bible, right? Also, there are, like I said, a number of people who don't really have any sort of religious background or affiliation. Paul engaged them by knowing some of their poetry. Now, let let me kind of give you like a word of encouragement and a word of caution. In many cases, here's your caution, in many cases, I don't think it's wise for us to be entertained in the same ways and with the same things that the world is entertained with, okay? But can we carefully study some of what the world loves, not for our entertainment, but in order to notice what is true and make a connection with them? Yes. There are, in our world, incredible artists, imaginative storytellers who are not Christians. And they are making movies, and they are writing books, and they are making art, and they're putting content on YouTube, and they're making videos on TikTok. Like, could we learn something from studying them a little bit? Certainly, we could. Should we give a lot of our time to be entertained by them? Probably not. Should we give some of our time to maybe trying to seek to study and understand them? Probably. I don't know how you do it. Um, you know, social media might be one of those ways that you do it. Um, I'm, I'm increasingly scared of it uh, and see it more and more of a tra- as a trap uh, than as something extremely useful. Uh, so, I, I mean, I mentioned to you back in July after I went on this wilderness trip in the Rocky Mountains, uh, one of the things that God convicted of me there was just uh, I need to spend less time kind of like scrolling through like, oh, that's funny. Oh, that's horribly tragic. Oh, you know, like, oh, that's cute. Oh, I should buy that. Like, man, just like all those things go through your mind in like just a few seconds as you scroll through stuff. I just decided I don't need to scroll through that stuff. There, there's stuff I want to know. Uh, and so I'm going to go out and I'm going to seek out what I want to know and not let some algorithms uh, developed by somebody uh, determine what, I, what they think I should know, right? So I, since July then, haven't like scrolled through. I've, I've got a Facebook account, so I check to see if I have any notifications or anybody's reached out to me. If I need to look something up, I'll look something up. I have a Twitter account. I've never tweeted in my life, and, I, and I've just, I haven't opened it. I get emails now all the time from Twitter like, Jeremy, we missed you. No, you don't. You're not even a person. You're Twitter, right? Like, like you don't miss me, and I don't miss you either, right? Like, I, I really, like, to be disengaged from some things. Now, is there advantages? So like for some of you, that's not the decision for you. For some of you, you can responsibly handle uh, being engaged in those things. Okay, great. Then use it, not for your entertainment and not for just like numbing your mind, but use it that you might understand the culture in order that you might be able to make bridges with the gospel of Jesus Christ to people, right? And, and the bridges probably aren't going to come on social media, right? Like you're probably not going to make a, a, a winsome gospel presentation or a, a, a stance for the truth on there. That's probably not, but, but you can understand how people are and then engage with like actual people, like the people behind the profile and like talk with them, uh, get together with them and, and be able to hopefully better do the work of evangelism. We need to listen to people. I don't know how you're going to do it, 
but find some way to understand the culture and listen well to people around us that we might make bridges for the work of evangelism. And then the second and final one, tell them about the God worth worshiping and call them to repent. We don't want to just study and like, oh, I understand those people now. Paul understood those people. And then he, he made this shift. I want to tell you about the God that you don't know yet. <laughs> and then that beautiful verse 24 kicks it off. The God who made the world and everything in it. Being Lord of heaven and earth. He doesn't live in your temples. He doesn't need you to serve him. Let me tell you about the one true God worth worshiping. And he's calling them to repent. We need to do the same. Four things I'll put up on the screen just really quick. I want people who love money and the things it can buy to know that God is the creator of all things and that everything that we could ever gain in this life is a loss compared to the surpassing greatness of knowing Christ Jesus our Lord. I want people's mind to change, people who love money. I want people who love pleasure to know that in God's presence there is fullness of joy, and at His right hand are pleasures forevermore. That's what it says in Psalm 16, 11. I want people who run around from activity to activity, addicted to busyness. I want them to be still and know that He is God, and He will be exalted among the nations. I want people who love power to know the joy that comes, not in having power, but in submitting ourselves to the one by whom, through whom, and for whom all things existed and were created. We call them to repentance. Why? Because God commands all people everywhere to repent. Because He has fixed a day on which He will judge the world in righteousness by a man whom He has appointed. That's what Paul told them. Hebrews 9.27 says it's appointed for man to die once and after that, judgment. So, before we go, probably the most important question to ask is, have you repented and turned to Jesus? <laughs> have, this is not just like, uh, oh, that was nice. Have you repented and turned to Jesus who is fully God and fully man? who is the only Lord and Savior, who lived as our representative and died as our substitute so that all who repent and trust in Him will be saved and live with the sure hope that on the day of judgment we will be assigned to eternal blessedness and joy with the Lord in the new heavens and the new earth to the praise of His glorious grace. Do you have that kind of confidence? How do you respond? Maybe you think this is ridiculous. Wait, so there was a, a guy who lived uh, 2,000 years ago and died, and you say he's God. He rose from the dead, and he's going to come back, and he's going to judge the world. You think that's ridiculous. I'd love to talk to you more. I'm not going to try to, I'm not going to beat you down and tell you why I think you're ridiculous. I, I don't think you're ridiculous. I understand how that's hard to believe. I want to I pray for you that you might have a heart that's softened to the reality that, that this is true. Maybe, maybe you're one that, like Paul, some of these people responded, and like, well, we want to hear more. Maybe that's where you're at. Just keep coming. But know that there is a day fixed for judgment, and we don't know when death and, and, and that day comes. And so don't just kind of like keep being curious forever. <laughs> and some of you today might be the day 
where you, like some of these people in Athens, say, all right, that's it. I confess, I've been worshiping false gods. I, I didn't, you know, I didn't worship like stone and gold, but there's certainly all sorts of things I've been worshiping in life. And today, today is the day where I have heard about this one true God, and I want to worship Him. My mind is changed. Then, like, that's not a secret. Like, come and, come and share that with somebody. Ron and Linda will be up here after the worship service, and you just come and tell them, like, hey, today's the day where I, like, I need to turn from worshiping worthless idols, and, and I want to put my faith in Jesus, right? And for many of us, this is, this is something we've already decided. We're, we're always kind of like pulled back in that direction. But, but God has already saved us. We have been convinced that the God that we worship is the only God worth worshiping. And maybe a, a good response for us today would be to begin by singing a song to remind ourselves about that and then going out and asking God to open our eyes up to the world around us that we might be more effective at the work of evangelism. So let's, let's pray. God, you are worthy of the worship of all of your creation. And I am amazed again that you, the God who needs nothing from anyone, the God who created and sustains all things, I am amazed that you have shown your mercy and grace to sinners like us. I'm grateful that though we were dead in our sin, you made us alive together with Christ, forgiving our sin, canceling our record of debt. And God, we are humbled by your grace and by your greatness. As we're about to sing, we really believe every inch of this universe belongs to you, O Christ. And so it is our joyful response to submit to and worship you today for all of eternity, in Jesus' name, amen.